0: This is Ron Orle, and you're listening to the Activist Investing Today podcast, and I'm super excited to have James Rasta, founder of Coast Capital, a Connecticut-based hedge fund that has a fascinating campaign underway at First Group, uh, here to speak with us. uh, This campaign is at uh, this UK transportation and bus company that has a large operation in the US, and uh, Coast Capital launched a director contest last year at First Group. And the company now is a strategic review of its uh, U.S. yellow school bus and transit business. So uh, quite interesting stuff. Welcome, James, and thanks a little time for talking to us.
1: Thank you, Ron, for making time to speak with me. Great to be with you.
0: Okay, super. So before we get into the first group, tell me a little about Coast Capital, how many positions you guys typically have, and how are you guys coping with this coronavirus-driven market craziness? Well, I'm not sure anybody's really coping uh, uh, terribly well, regardless of whether you're making profits
1: or not. it's It's uh, a <laughs> confusing and uh, and uh, at time at best. Um, but uh, look we uh, uh, as a fund, uh, um, we, we are a fairly concentrated fund. We have about ten positions, ten core positions in the fund. The company that you mentioned is one of our largest positions. Um, and what we do as a rule of thumb is we look for and invest in companies that we believe are leaders. Mm-hmm. In growing and profitable industries. And we invest in these companies when their valuations are very low and when there are events to release value back to investors. You know, maybe mm-hmm. the company is appointing a new management team to turn around under, under profitable businesses. Maybe the company is disposing of a non core asset. Maybe the company is for sale in its entirety. Or maybe we can encourage the company, or indeed, when necessary, force the company to take any of these steps that we think are investors and actually the company's best interest mm-hmm. over time. Um, so the, the biggest difference uh, between us and our peers, though, Ron, is that we have an advisory board that is populated with some of the leading CEOs. Oh, I from didn't the know that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, from the industries in which we invest. And these individuals who work with us on these assignments exclusively um, basically conduct operational due diligence on the underlying company, and, you know, put together value creation plans for the companies that we invest in. So when we show up with a plan for a company, it's not James Raste who, you know, aside from from this interview, no one's heard of. Um, it really is. Um, <laughs> that may be ve- changing. <laughs> Sorry, um, go on, go on. <laughs> yeah, no, it, 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 it is. the. It is by far the management team that has created the most value and that actually knows the company intimately well, that is acutely aware of specific problems that have played with the company and that needed to be resolved a long time ago, that has come up with a remedy to these problems. Uh, And these are remedies that that are, it's not a thesis. We don't show up with a thesis. We think that if you do this, that A will happen. We will know ahead of time that, you know, if you do uh, uh, manage a certain business differently, or if you bring in a certain different management team, or if you structure your balance sheet differently, or if you dispose of certain assets, the following events will happen. And we push for those events if they are not happening independently of us, when it is clear as day to us that those events will create value. So that's kind of what we do, and we, um, as a result of the work that we do, uh, which dives a lot more deeply into our companies than, than most public market investors, we are able to create consensus among our fellow investors. So you know we kind of rule through consensus. Um, and, um, and yeah, that's that's a little bit about.
0: Well, so before I get into a little bit about the first group situation, which was really really interesting, and we've written like half a dozen articles about, I'm curious if you could just maybe dig a little bit into the CEO advisory board. So do these CEOs, they like, do you have different CEOs in different sectors that are specialists? Um, we do particular companies, and do they have investments with uh, Coast Capital or are they? Yeah, a- so they are they are they're not all invested in us, but they are our anchor investors are indeed our
1: advisors, and we we. I have to tell you, one of the things I'm most grateful for is just the investors that we get to allocate capital on behalf of. We just we get to we get to invest for some really really interesting and thoughtful people, and that's 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 just uh, and our interactions with them are just a, a, a pleasure, and a, invariably leads us to learn a whole bunch of things. So and so we've created an ecosystem that I really uh, love and I really enjoy. I must admit, um, these CEOs look. This all started um, I want to say about 15 years ago with a company called Compass Group which was the largest contract catering company in the UK, the company which when I was growing up, I've been investing for almost a quarter of a century now. So in the mid 90s, Compass Group was trading at 30 times earnings and it had 10% even margins. Okay. And you know, it had, and, and I love the company because I could see continued growth in the pace of outsourcing of, con- of catering contracts. I could see that schools and hospitals uh, would increasingly outsource the running of their of their cafeterias rather than run themselves, and this is when you manage it well, a double digit EBIT business, and it's very very repeatable, right? So it's a good valuable business, and I always wanted to buy the company, but it was always too expensive. I'm a deep value investor. When you that say buy be, the company, you
0: mean buy a stake in the company? Buy a stake in the company. Okay, just checking. Yeah, making sure. Go on. Yes.
1: No, I, I, I apologize, but I must admit, you know, that's a very good question. Because when we buy into a company, we don't think of ourselves as, you know, a pa- certainly never as a passive. And I'm not sure that we really think of ourselves as a minority investor, which invariably we are. We think our, of ourselves as, as as a co-owner and indeed an owner in the company. You okay, know? And that's so, fair. Um, And that's just the wiring thing, I think. But in, in that case, that the company went on from, from double digit EBIT margins, and 35 times earnings to um, in 2005 when I bought into it, 10 times earnings multiple and margins that had collapsed from 10% to 3%. And this company was the biggest and the best in the sector and in the light of its economies of scale should have been the most profitable. And yet it was the least profitable of the, of the contract catering companies its competitors being Aramark in the U.S. and Sodexo and Elior in France, and then a whole bunch of smaller companies.
0: And at the deal, we know a lot about Aramark uh, and uh, the Mantle Ridge campaign there and their troubles today, but go on.
1: Well, we we got to know the contract catering industry really well. Basically, here's what happened. So management couldn't tell you what the problem was to save their lives. The company was making 10 billion pounds of sales a year It should have made 300. uh, It should have made a billion of EBIT. It was making 300, and they had no idea what the problem was. And they spent 50 million bucks a year on McKinsey, which I think is like a curse to most companies that end up uh, using their services. Um, They ended up paying consistently a meaningful amount of money to consultants to solve this problem, and year in year out, the margins persisted at sort of the 2.5 to 3 percent level. Um, And we uh, realized that ultimately it was a management problem and and looked far and wide for an ideal management team for the company. And I found um, a gentleman who since become a really good friend named uh, Sir Jerry Robinson. So Jerry, as he likes to be called, is, as far as I'm concerned, the most successful turnaround CEO of all time anywhere in the world. He has led... Turnarounds at multi billion dollar companies, mostly in the UK, in at least six different industries and one nonprofit uh, multi billion dollar entity with resounding success. But one of the things, that, and he's not even a high school graduate, but what he, one of the things that he did was you know, he joined um, a conglomerate. Uh, uh, in the uk and found compass group and went through the ranks as an accountant ultimately became the head of compass group and led a spin-off of compass group from the conglomerate in the 1980s in fact i think in 1985 and that was basically the best ipo of that year in the in the uk and you know great manager um he Ultimately ended up leaving Compass Group, he was performing very well, it had the kind of multiples that, that, that I mentioned, 30 times earnings, 10% EBIT, there was nothing left for him. To do. So he left and did other things. And by the time we got in touch with him, Compass Group was in a whole lot of trouble. Um, I contacted him and he basically put together probably the most elegant and simple and powerful turnaround plan I will ever see in my life for any company. And Here's what the plan
0: was. He basically became one of your CEO advisors, is that our ex-CEO advisors? He,
1: he, 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 he did, and, and to this day he is. He's really the, the advisor that I've worked with most consistently and, and over time and he's become a friend, uh, uh, and I would say that we have similar relationships with all of our advisors. They've each helped us solve a big problem. They've each benefited from working with us, hopefully as much as we have benefited from working with them, and therefore it's a really wonderful mutualistic relationship that we have with our advisors. But basically in the case of Compass Group, um, and I won't spend too much time on it, but the company made 10 billion pounds in revenues a year. It spent 5 billion pounds on procurement. Um, mm-hmm. And it had designated vendors uh, uh, who would sell its foodstuffs for 20% lower prices than uh, 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 wholesale. Mm-hmm. And the problem was the company had its regional managers. The regional managers were basically procuring through wholesalers who were friends of theirs. Mm-hmm. And as a result, they were paying 20% more than they needed to because at the end of the year, the wholesaler would send them, you know, a crate of champagne or a whole bunch of heads of ham or whatever. And so because they were not enforcing their procurement policies, they were foregoing one billion pounds of savings a year, if you can imagine. What, Ralph, yeah. what time frame are we talking about here? In terms of when this had gone on, well, we were—I we, started investing in the company about fifteen years ago, so in two thousand and five.
0: Okay, just go on. Yeah. yeah, just curious.
1: Yeah, no, look, basically, we put together a turnaround plan and 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 took it to uh, our uh, fellow investors, and there was clearly consensus around doing the right thing, and we, uh, with a unified voice, urged the board to recognize this problem. Uh, uh, and, and, uh, and implement the solutions that Sir Jerry had come up uh, with. And I have to tell you within two weeks of us approaching the board, um, the company announced that the CEO was leaving. The CFO was a very competent guy and stayed on board. The chairman became, interim chairman became an executive chairman and CEO while they looked for an ideal CEO candidate. We helped them appoint the person who ultimately became the CEO and and um, uh, led to a, a tenfold increase in the share price over the sort of 12 years that he was at that company. Um, and that was in a period where the FTSE basically declined. Um, so it was a massive outperformer. And it was just a really fun exercise. And it taught us the power of um, liaising with or coupling up with the greatest experts on any company that we looked at.
0: Mm-hmm. So okay, so so then you started. That's after that you started um, getting in touch with more ex CEOs, uh, experts, and I, does that sound right. And I guess talk a little about the first group situation. Did you use a CEO advisor yeah. expert with with that?
1: First Group is a live situation, and there are a number of
0: really, really accomplished people. We've uh,
1: and important people in the transport industry. We've been working with, so I'll be um, somewhat limited in what I, what, I, what I say, if I may. But basically, look, First Group is uh, the most important surface transport company in North America, and probably the most important in the UK as well. What is surface transport? You know, rails, buses, student transportation, transit services. Right. So in North America, the company has the largest fleet of school buses, it is the largest operator of transit services, and it's the largest operator of city to city bus networks. So they own Greyhound and Bolt and York, the bus lines. In the UK, they're the largest operators of buses, and they're all they're the largest operator of rail contracts as well. So we are currently in like biblical times, right? There's a plague out. And people aren't moving around; they're paralyzed. And clearly, it's a terrible time. The chairman we appointed a new chairman of the company, who's a really important uh, CEO from the
0: industry, knows this business very well. Is really a great operator.
1: Interestingly, the, CEO, the new chairman
0: is a guy that was on your slate of directors, is David Martin, the right. uh, uh, ex CEO of the uh, first group uh, rival Arriva. So uh, quite impressive. Yes. So he's definitely um it was somebody that you had wanted to be on the board yes on yes, yes. that's exactly right
1: look david is a great operator i think the world at large agrees that he's just a great steady um you know um, um stoic um, competent british um you know uh, um, operator uh and uh, and we have sought him not necessarily as chairman but as a board member because believe it or not this surface transport company that generates 75% of its earnings in North America, didn't have a single board member with prior surface transport experience. Wow. If you can imagine. I mean, it's just, I think it was it, it was just really, really poorly run as a company, and I think that all the directors who are on the board should be ashamed of themselves. Okay, so, the so now
0: transport. the company's launched a strategic review for its US uh, bus and transit business. I yeah. mean, is this a good time for them? I mean, the markets are, uh, so uh, in flux right now. Shouldn't they uh, put this review on hold at this point? Or? Well,
1: look. Here, here's here's whatever the review has already happened. The conclusion is that the U.S. and the U.K. assets don't belong together, right? Yeah. Uh, which, you know, we we've been off that view all along. They do not belong together. Look, I don't know. I mean, is there any good business to operate in right now, right? Other than you know teleconferencing businesses? Right. <laughs> no. Uh, <so, laughs> You know, do you want to be in an airline? Do you want to own a hotel? Do you want to own a restaurant? Do you want a car insurance company? Do you want a car company? Do you want a boat rental company? I mean, like, there's not a single industry aside from those that like grocery stores and you know home conferencing companies and and pharmaceutical companies. There, I hope soon enough, that are going to benefit from this, you know, uh, uh, pandemic. pandemic. Um, so just now is 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 obviously not a great time to be in this business and just now is obviously not a great time to be in any business at all but generally speaking unless we change our way of life and unless we stop traveling about and unless we stop taking on elderly to you know get examined and blah 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 you know i think that public transport is the industry of the future here's why basically we live in increasingly congested cities and um, B, people are increasingly choosing transportation based on economic and convenience rationale rather than you know, driving a car that's fancy and sort of portrays them a certain way. And indeed, I would say that the millennials probably don't like the idea of owning a car, or owning an asset as much as my generation does. Um, and so I think we're moving in a world where transportation is viewed as a service rather than as something that you access to something that you own, or something that you do for yourself because you own the mechanism whereby you you, you get transported. So I think that basically, because road-based public transport for distances of less than 180 miles, are the are often the fastest. They're definitely the most convenient and by far the cheapest and most environmentally sensible way to go. Mm-hmm. And because they're the best way to manage city congestions, I think that going forward, it's, it's it's clearly the industry of the future. And indeed, that's you know if you look at the fastest, if you look at sea to sea travel in North America, buses have tripled their market share of such trips over the past ten years.
0: Right. So, just remind our, re- our listeners who may not know that the, the fir- a little bit about the, the first group's U.S. assets, it's more than just school buses, right? They have other, uh, yeah. other forms. of transit other operations.
1: operations. Yeah, absolutely, transit operations.
0: So if you're a university campus that has
1: a bus that transports students from one part of the campus to another, you've historically bought that bus and run it yourself, but increasingly you outsource that to first group. If you're in the city of New York and you have a paratransit service to take care of the elderly and transport them between their homes to their doctor appointments, you've historically done that yourself, but increasingly you outsource it to first. Basically, First Group runs a tighter shift, provides a better service for a lower price, takes the non activity away from you. And therefore, you're seeing a vast proliferation and consistent proliferation in the number of contracts that they get. And it's a very profitable business. The school bus business is a really great business. You get four-year contracts on average, just about, with local municipalities as your counterparts. You get 90% plus contract renewal rates in a normal environment. And if you run your business well, you generate very good cash flow while generating service savings for the local municipalities. So it's a great business. And by the way, when a local municipality outsources, again, they generate 10 to 20% savings in their transport costs upon outsourcing. So -hmm. there's a big economic rationale for them to do this. And only about a third of municipalities have outsourced
0: so far. So there's a lot of growth ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. I'm going to, uh, one last question, and then we're, we're pretty much out of time. I've always been uh, fascinated by, uh, I feel like a trend that I've seen in recent years of US based activists uh, launching campaigns that. You know, companies incorporated or are, are really yeah. based on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. And I know that first group, you know, a huge part of its operation in the U.S. But you know, you guys are based in Connecticut. Is, is that right? We're based in look. We're based in the Northeast. We're, we're based in New York. We're based okay. in New York. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, but so well, uh, uh, what made you, do, you know, launch a campaign and a director contest at a company on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean? I guess is the question. Well, Ron, look,
1: I, I grew up in France. Uh, my, my uh, I learned to speak French way before I learned to speak English, um, and uh, and I have been investing in Europe um, for um, almost 25 years now. So mm-hmm. I'm probably as comfortable investing in in, in Europe as I am uh, in, in in our great uh, country. And frankly, I prefer visiting companies in Italy than Idaho. No, no offense to you. <laughs> That's true. Many, many great companies in Idaho. It's just Italy is is, is Italy. So yeah, you know, look, I think Europe is is really fun. I think that it's 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 a very rich environment, um, certainly for us to look at and to begin because it is. Um, there is a dearth of engaged investors who do proper operational due diligence on their companies, and for us, we are blessed with more opportunities than we can. Pursue at any point in time. Um, here in the U.S., everything seems pretty reasonably well picked over, um, and you know, I just, I just, I think that the opportunity set for me is
0: incomparably more attractive
1: in Europe
0: than it is in the U.S. Okay. There's no comparison. Okay, great. That uh, that uh, that's fascinating stuff. Uh, you've been listening to the Activist Investing Today podcast with Ron Oral, and we've been talking to James Rasta of Coast Capital. Thank you, James, for taking the time. Thank you, Ron. Pleasure as always.